Kathy goes into three key elements of a weapon of math destruction, being opacity, scale, and damage. And so these are three key features of any WMD or of any model. So they could be either good or they could be bad. But when each of these things are bad, that's what makes them harmful and dangerous and unfair. Hello, and welcome back to season two of the Data Feminism Network podcast. My name is Michaela, and I'm the executive producer of the DFN podcast, and I'll be your host today. This season, we'll be sharing some of our favorite data feminism books with you to give you a foundation of literature to explore how algorithms and data can exacerbate inequality. Today, I'll be speaking with Jade, our director of strategic initiatives, about Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. I'm really excited for this. Um, I think we should jump right into it and just give a little bit of a background for everybody listening about the book. If you haven't heard about it before, the book is Weapons of Math Destruction, which is written by Kathy O'Neill. She's a mathematician and data scientist uh, by training, and it was written in 2016. So these examples are all from around that time, just to keep in mind. But in the book, she talks about how societal biases are perpetuated by algorithms and mathematical models. And she really focuses on the fact that this environment of data, of AI, of all types of algorithms, it, there's no regulation. The book shows us how decisions that are increasingly being made by machines have the power to either really push somebody towards success or ruin people's lives. And we have examples that range from job performance evaluations to accessing loans and health insurance. And the problem with uh, artificial intelligence and these algorithms is that humans trust that these mathematical models remove bias and are more fair. But in reality, existing inequalities and judgments and biases that we all have are baked into the machines themselves that then end up making so many really important decisions that affect people's lives. And so from school teachers, prison sentences, we're going to unpack some of the most crucial examples that we found really impactful from Kathy's book so that we can help everybody better understand how machines and AI may actually be doing more harm than good. Thanks, Michaela. Now that we have a little bit of an introduction on what the book is about, could you actually say a bit more about what weapons of math destruction are? Of course. And maybe we'll refer to them as WMDs throughout the episode as well, just because it is a mouthful. And Kathy opens the book and she gives an example of baseball as a model that is good and healthy because it's transparent. It's continuously updated with information about player performance, like strikes, home runs. So information from every single game is then fed into the model to give it more information and make it more accurate. And we can all see the why behind the model's conclusions because all of the results of each game are so readily available for anybody to, to look up. And so the model feeds on statistics from each game, not from proxies, but from the game itself and people being modeled. So the players, they understand the process of the model. They understand that they're being evaluated and they all have the same common objective. And so they understand the reasoning behind the model, which would be winning the World Series. And so it's obviously not harming anybody. And everybody is on the same page and understands how to use the model and what its purpose is. And so that's an example that she gives as a really good model so that we all can kind of build our understanding on the bad ones throughout the book. Kathy goes into three key elements of a weapon of math destruction, being opacity, scale, and damage. 
And so these are three key features of any WMD or of any model. So they could be either good or they could be bad. But when each of these things are bad, that's what makes them a WMD. So with regards to opacity, are participants in the model aware of what the model is being used for? Are they even aware that they're a participant in a model in the first place? Going back to what you were saying, Jade, a lot of the time we don't even realize that we're feeding data into these algorithms, into these models using things like our phone, our laptop. So do we know that we are participating in this model? Is the model opaque? Is it invisible? Is it something that we can clearly see and access? So the baseball example is really good for that because you know that you can search up baseball results all the time, but Mm -hmm. you can't really look up what data is being taken from you about you, right? right? And with scale, can the model grow exponentially? Scalability, as Kathy puts it, is what turns weapons of math destruction from small problems into larger problems that impact more and more people. So what's the snowball effect of the model? How many people are being sucked into it and being impacted by it? And then lastly, when it comes to damage, not all weapons of math destruction are damaging because, you know, some people do benefit from these algorithms. Some people get sent to Harvard, whereas other people end up lining up for loans or, or have a, trouble getting good jobs. The issue is that the models are powered by these algorithms that harm millions and millions of people where the opportunities to succeed are quite smaller and they affect a way fewer number of people. So it's just fundamentally really unfair in terms of how the benefits of the model are distributed. Right. And they do tend to privilege already those in the highest positions in society. So those who are white, upper middle class, cisgendered heteronormative, and then it's going to sort of further oppress those in the lowest positions in society, and then actually end up replicating those positions and maintain them, which we will get into. Exactly. And Kathy kind of opens up with an example of a bad WMD about recidivism, which is the likelihood of committing a crime again. And I thought that the way she spelled out why this model and why this algorithm is is so harmful was really well put. So as you were just saying, this model is specifically really embedded with racial bias. And so she quotes a University of Maryland study that uh, in Harris County, which includes Houston, prosecutors were three times more likely to seek the death penalty for African-Americans and four times more likely for Hispanics than for whites who were convicted of the same charges. So that just demonstrates automatically the insane bias towards people of color to give them harsher sentences. Right. So it's kind of reflecting then what the current state looks like now. So that those statistics probably model what it has already looked like before currently and in the past. So it's kind of just redoing that. Exactly. It's reinforcing that. And you can even see and just how many African-Americans versus white people versus Hispanics are in the prison system, how imbalanced it is. African-Americans only made up 13% of the population when this study was conducted, but they occupied 40% of prison cells in America and received sentences that are almost 20% longer than those for white people convicted of the same crime. So that right there just shows that it makes it doesn't make any sense why that would be the case. But one popular recidivism model that Kathy goes into is known as the LSIR model. And it includes a questionnaire that prisoners have to fill out. And some questions appear to be, you know, strongly correlated to how likely they will commit another crime. Like how many prior convictions have you had? 
or what part did others play in the crime? What role did drugs and alcohol play? All things that might sway somebody's decision making. And we can all clearly see that. But Mm -hmm. then she goes into these other questions that are less related and far more interpretive and therefore more biased. Like, how many times have you been involved with the police? Which obviously prompts a different answer depending on whether an inmate with a privileged background grew up in a wealthy suburban area or an inmate who grew up in a low-income inner-city neighborhood, which are often neighborhoods that are more policed to begin with. Or it prompts different answers based on race or gender. A young Black male um, is more likely to have been stopped at random by the police, even if they've done nothing wrong or nothing suspicious, compared to a white man or even a white woman. So in the book, Kathy goes on to describe a New York Civil Liberties Union study in 2013, which found that Black and Latino males aged 14 to 24 made up only 4.7% of the city's population in New York, but they accounted for 40.6% of the stop and frisk checks by the police, even though over 90% of the young men in that age category were innocent. Wow. So the numbers show that a white person, a white male, white female are way less likely to be stopped. And therefore the answers to their questions in this model are going to be so different and likely privilege them to have shorter sentences or less severe sentences for the same crime because they quote unquote have not engaged with the police before. Right. And it's not that people of color are convicting more crimes. It's the fact that the police are there to catch these crimes and therefore making it seem as though they're more crime-ridden people because that's what history shows, but only because they're disproportionately targeted. Exactly. And Kathy even gives an example of the Gold Coast in the book. If we increased police presence in a rich, privileged, predominantly white neighborhood, the types of crimes might be different, but the crimes are still happening. You could find tax evasion, you could find petty theft, You could find a lot of white collar crime just by being present there that police are choosing not to target. Even blowing a stop sign in that neighborhood versus an inner city low income neighborhood. It doesn't really seem like those are being policed equally. Yes. You know, that also brings up another algorithm that she talks about, which is called Predpool, which is a predictive crime model that helps target and track criminal acts would essentially helps tell police where they should go surveil and where crimes are most likely to happen. But the data that's populating this algorithm is based on existing sort of facts or existing crime rates. And so it's sending police back sort of to these areas that are more known for crimes. It's going to be picking up more crimes and therefore sending police back there. And so it's going on this sort of loop. The more crimes that they notice, the more crime ridden that neighborhood is going to be considered. But also when we think about neighborhoods that are going to be considered more crime ridden, it's disproportionately going to be neighborhoods of people of color or also impoverished neighborhoods, which are disproportionately people of color in the United States. So she does say that geography can be a proxy for race. So even if the algorithm doesn't say it's disproportionately targeting people of color by targeting those specific neighborhoods that it does, it still is. And so the algorithm, it's very unlikely that it's going to send the police to, you know, a frat village at a private university and be catching everybody 
underage drinking, sexual assault. Yeah. 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 Doing all the things that we know happen, but people aren't caught and, you know, they're not going to be more likely to be punished or, you know, have that data feed back into the system. So it's kind of doing exactly what it wants it to do. Exactly. And one thing that I found really surprising that she included, just to show how little this makes sense, is that at the time of the study, it cost roughly $31,000 to house an inmate and double that in expensive states like New York. And so the longer that people are locked away, the more expensive it is for taxpayers and for the government to, to house them in prisons. But it also means that you're surrounding somebody who maybe hasn't committed a very serious crime with criminals who have committed serious crimes for a really long time. So you're already increasing the likelihood that they'll return to prison by keeping them there. Especially when we're asking these questions like, like how often have you engaged with the police? Have you committed a crime before? They're going to look at how long they've kept somebody in jail and put them right back there. I recently listened to another podcast where Kathy O'Neill is a guest. We can share the name of it um, in the notes for this episode. But Kathy asks, you know, what is the point of prisons? Why are we sending people to prison if there's so much likelihood to end up going back? Like clearly when people are at prison, it's not actually helping them. So why even are we sending them and, and putting money into these systems in the first place that are making it harder for people to live happy lives? Yeah, completely. It's clearly a film. And you see around the world prison models that are super different than, you know, North America. I think it's in one of the Nordic countries where people in prison get to take classes and access to continued education and skill development so that they're able to reintegrate into the workforce once they're out. And I feel like that's so much more supportive to your population. Yeah. And as well, when people who were convicted of a crime are released back into society, they have so much of a harder time getting jobs. So the society that we're releasing people back into is not designed to support them or allow them to escape poverty. So it's getting worse and worse for those who are more sort of predisposed to ending up in prison, getting a longer sentence, unable to then escape the cycle of poverty. And then that data is being populated back into the system that's then informing the decisions of the police and other sentencing decisions. Exactly. I recently read Race After Technology, which I am so excited to do um, an episode on later. It's an incredible book, but that book talks about a study of recidivism rates in Florida, and they found that the score predictor was really unreliable in forecasting violent crime. And it was also twice as likely to falsely flag Black defendants as future criminals than white defendants, and also more likely to mislabel white defendants as low risk than Black defendants. And Jackie Wang, who is the author of the book Carceral Capitalism, asks a really good question, which is how might the expectation of finding crime influence what the officers actually find? Will people who pass through these temporary crime zones where while they are being patrolled by officers automatically be perceived as suspicious? I think the obvious answer here is yes. I have not really taken any psychology courses, but I'm sure there are going to be studies that, you know, show the bias of expecting something definitely influences the results. 
I'm going to quote Ruha Benjamin again from Race After Technology. And she says, the danger with new gym code predictions is the way in which self-fulfilling prophecies enact what they predict, giving the allure of accuracy. Those are both really powerful. I think they encapsulate everything that this example is kind of trying to get us to think about. For those listeners who maybe are less familiar, um, could you just quickly let us know what the gym code is? Yes, of course. So the new gym code, it's um, a term that was coined by Ruha Benjamin in her book, Race After Technology. And the new gym code explores a range of discriminatory designs that encode inequity, firstly by explicitly amplifying racial hierarchies or ignoring racial hierarchies and thereby replicating social divisions or by actually saying that they're going to be fixing racial bias through these new codes, but the results end up doing quite the opposite. Thank you, Jade, for letting us know. And I think for all of our listeners, we're going to dive more in depth into that example and many others when we do the Race After Technology podcast later this season. And we really encourage you to read Race After Technology by Ruha Benjamin and also Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill to become more familiar with these examples and the terminology and the history behind data bias. But I really want to move on to a couple of other examples that Kathy brings up in her book. And I know, Jade, you work in higher education. I also used to work in higher education. And so I think we both found the examples around college admissions and teacher evaluations really interesting, um, especially as two young women who recently graduated from our master's. And I was wondering if you wanted to dive in a little bit more into the college admissions WMD. Yes, I would love to. Um, Firstly, with this specific example, it touches a lot on one of the three elements of a WMD, which is scalability. And so at the beginning of this chapter on college admissions, um, Kathy O'Neill gives, you know, a quick analogy about new diets, um, like veganism or like paleo diet and how, at you know, a small scale, if it's just you know, a a certain kind of percentage of the population who's adopting these diets, there's not really any major harm, but to consider what would happen if say the entire state of California, you know, was all paleo or was all vegan and sort of what impact that would have on the food market, on particular resources. I mean, it would cause so many issues. There would be jobs lost in certain industries. I mean, it's hard to even kind of comprehend what would happen and so it's something that's you know kind of harmless and actually you know could be doing a lot of good for those who are vegan you know at a smaller level but yeah when you consider the scalability it's dairy farmers would be completely out of business (laughs) yeah exactly so um it's yeah it's it's difficult to even comprehend what would happen and so in this particular example um that o'neill gets into it's about um u.s news college university ranking um, that started in 1983, where um, 1,800 different colleges and universities were ranked for excellence, and it was going to be published in a magazine. It was something that, you know, initially wouldn't be that harmful if it wasn't sort of, um, if it didn't get as big as it was. But, you know, this exact list ended up influencing 
millions of people and their decision on where they'd go to school. But as I get more into the example, you'll see how it kind of changed the way universities were designed and what universities were even sort of for to begin with just to be kind of ranked on, on this list. So for US News in creating this list, they had to decide, you know, what are they actually going to be ranking universities on? So there are some things that we would consider would make a good university, like, you know, potentially happiness of the students or friendships or things that aren't really quantifiable, but, you know, the way that they positively impact students and, and where they go on for the rest of their lives. But it's difficult to measure those things. Things, though, that are a little bit easier to measure could be, you know, what are the SAT scores of the students who are coming in? What are the acceptance rates? What are the campus facilities? Um, what are percentages of students? who are getting jobs afterwards, uh, student-teacher ratios, all things like this that are more measurable. And then, you know, they're actually deciding then what is important and what defines educational excellence, when in reality, universities can be better for different people. I mean, there's no kind of one way to measure what university is going to be the best for a certain individual, but this list was unintentionally doing so. Right. And after the list was published, it, you know, received so much public attention and universities themselves were frustrated at, at their ranking and, you know, wanting to kind of learn, like, how can we rank better? And so they started pouring a bunch of money um, into, you know, their facilities, their services and other factors that, according to the list, played into educational excellence, which you know, probably weren't actually doing so. Especially considering half of those things that are being measured have nothing to do with the quality of the actual education being delivered. Like I don't see very many measurements. Student to teacher ratios might be one, but I don't see a lot of other measurements of how you could see what the learning capacity is and how devoted a university is to student learning and student retention. Yes. Yeah. So what you're saying is their focus was more so on their rankings than on the actual quality of education at the school. Exactly. Uh, They wanted to do kind of whatever they could to improve their ranking to be perceived as the best school. And in doing so and pouring more money into fitting into these rankings, it caused tuition to rise and needed a way to fund these. And so between 1985 and 2013, tuition prices rose as much as 500%. So because of the scale of this ranking, it impacted universities all around the country wanting to kind of adhere to these certain standards that were, you know, just decided for, for a list. It wasn't something that was, you know, agreed upon. And may I also jump in and add, you're right, they were not rankings or metrics that were agreed upon by universities saying these are the common goals that we want to achieve in order to better education in this country, which would have been collaborative as a process for everybody to be involved and far more transparent for universities. But also, um, but like you said, Jade, this was a U.S. news ranking system that they created themselves that blew up across the country. But who from U.S. News created this? Did they have an education background? Probably not. Yeah, I I don't think so. 
yeah, and then their decision had so many negative impacts on people and still does. I mean, it completely changed the landscape of what higher institutions are and what happens when tuition becomes more expensive. Well, certain people then aren't able to afford education. And also what happens too when those who are able to attend these top schools, they're of course going to be perceived as more excellent. They're going to be the ones getting the higher paying jobs, getting more opportunities. But if, you know, this is going to be based on sort of the cost of getting into the school and you think about the way that wealth is distributed in the U.S. where, you know, a few in the top percentage have access to it and then those who, you know, don't have access to wealth are disproportionately people of color then those who are already in the privileged positions are going to get these higher opportunities attending these excellent schools and other people do not have these same opportunities. And it also then feeds back into that poverty loop. Exactly. And also with these rankings, you know, people who have those resources to be able to get into these schools and who can pay for the tuition, they're going to be able to also pay for things like an SAT tutor because they know SAT is an important part of the ranking. They're also going to be doing the extracurricular activities that, you know, universities find important. But, you know, what about people who aren't able to do extracurricular activities because they're taking care of their siblings or are working other jobs? jobs. Yeah, things that aren't considered as important. It's going to be, yeah, I mean, redlining them from access to higher education. And so myself in higher education with my university, our programs are are very small. So luckily we do have the time to really individually understand everybody's story, ask these types of questions and, you know, go more into the things about them and not just kind of be putting their information into an algorithm and having them be screened out. But a lot of universities that have thousands and thousands of applicants I mean they probably are using algorithms at least to do initial screening you know based on a set of academic requirements but are they really looking into the full story behind it and also too I mean with the cost of tuition it's of course very expensive especially for master's degree education only certain people have access to it or even know that it's for people like them and so I'm, I'm kind of newer into this role in college admissions, but that was part of the reason I wanted to get into it was to figure out, you know, how can we make getting master's degrees more accessible to people who maybe don't traditionally fit sort of the white male male norm of, you know, who would have an MBA or who would have a master's degree and then go on to be a business leader. So somehow it's all connected back to this US News article that caused tuition to rise. And I remember what you what you said about how knowing that you need to get into the best school in the country in order to get the best job afterwards. And families were investing in these SAT tutors and prep courses in extracurriculars to, to help boost their students' application and help boost their chances of getting in. I remember in the book, Kathy quoted some crazy number, like people were paying above $20,000 to tutors that were helping their students get into post-secondary. And that as a business is already like people would not be able to access that level of tutoring. Average families would not be able to access that level of support to have a sure, fast way to ensure that their student is going to get a quality education. Right. 
And even when you look at these tests themselves, like how could they, you know, pick one exam that's somehow going to measure everybody's academic aptitude? Like, I don't know if you took the SAT in Canada, but I did in the US and I was terrible at the SAT. And, you know, I felt like I wasn't smart because I couldn't perform well on this test. And I know there's a lot of other people who felt the same way. And, you know, those who were able to get help on how to actually take the test, sometimes it's not even measuring your actual academic aptitude, but your ability to take this specific test and the exact way that they ask these specific questions. Mm -hmm. It also takes time to study for these. So if you need to be making money to support your family or to make money for tuition, how are you going to have the time on top of school, on top of these extracurriculars you're supposed to be doing to then study for this test, get a good score and get into a top school. It's the entire system is, is corrupt and, you know, already benefiting those who are in the more privileged positions. Exactly. So, so we know that this has happened. We know that in the U S U S news rankings has completely altered the way that the education system functions, but how has that now what's happened to the education system since? We're now in an education system that is amplifying wealth gaps since the rich and upper middle class are able to attend good schools, get good jobs, whereas lower middle class and lower class people who we know are disproportionately people of color in the United States don't have the resources to attend university and in turn don't have access to these higher paying jobs to then get out of the poverty cycle. And also their children then, if if their parents didn't have access to wealth or have good paying jobs, they're going to be in the same sort of cycle. There are going to be exceptions to this, of course, but people with fewer resources attending university and getting a good job shouldn't have to be an exception. And today there are a lot of community colleges around the U.S. that offer tuition for a fraction of the price, and there are options to getting higher education. But of course, we're in a society that you know, it's going to measure excellence based on these arbitrary standards. So seeing a great school on somebody's resume, unconscious bias, it's going in a meritocracy that we live in, you know, that they're going to view those universities as better and that those people are then better candidates. So university rankings are not only a national standard, but they're going to be this sort of vicious feedback loop that's then materialized. Completely, completely. And what you said about people visualizing themselves as students, as undergrad students, as master's students, and how that drove you to, you know, work in college admissions, what you're doing right now, this loop will inevitably never put somebody who looks like me or somebody who looks like you um, or, you know, people of color, people who grew up from diverse backgrounds in positions like being a master's student, being an undergraduate student, being a successful like person who works in the banking industry or without seeing ourselves in these roles, as you were kind of alluding to, we don't think that we can access higher education as Mm -hmm. young students or as, you know, teenagers. And this system will just inevitably reinforce that mindset. So not only is it the fact that people don't have access, like materially, they don't have access because of the cost um, or because of the on real standards that students have to meet in order to even be eligible to apply. But then at the same time, I would never even visualize myself as that student anyway, because I've never seen anybody like me do it. And so that mentality also sets people in that same 
poverty loop or poverty trap that you were alluding to. Yeah, that's, that's well said. And two, you know, you'll think like, I don't know, you think about the people who are smartest and most successful. A lot of them are already coming from money in these positions of privilege. And so mm-hmm. we're in an education system that's really valuating or really valuing these sort of factors that are kind of reliant on how much money and, and time you had. And I think that this is why teachers are so important. And with that example that you just went through of the college admissions process, we're looking at education as a system. We're looking at education, especially higher education, as a business model, right? And that's why the rankings are so important, because at the end of the day, universities who rank higher have more applicants, will be bringing in more students, more tuition, more money, more money for research and for whatever else the school is doing. Some of it benefits society, but definitely not all of it, right? And that's why I think one of the other examples that Kathy talks about in her book about teacher ratings is so important because teachers are the foundation of, of learning for students. They motivate students to pursue higher education or um, push students to learn, you know, to their full capacity. I know my teachers were super influential for me when I was growing up. And when we look at how we rank the education system, where we look at how we rank teachers, we're really affecting generations of next students. And so I want to dive into this other example that's related to the one that we just went over about teachers in DC and how they were ranked and evaluated. And again, how it was detrimental to the education system there. So in 2007, there were a lot of underperforming schools across Washington, DC. And at the time, only around 8% of eighth graders were performing at grade level math. And one in two high school students were making it to graduation after grade nine. So really low uh, success rates for, for students. And the theory at the time was that students are not learning due to bad quality teachers or poor quality teachers. So some mechanism was needed in order to evaluate teachers and weed out the good from the bad. And as Kathy put it, to optimize the school system. And so the impact tool was developed uh, to evaluate teachers based on student performance. And the educational progress of students was determined by annual standardized exams, kind of like the SATs, like you were talking about, at the end of every school year. And the tool would attempt to equate the amount of progress or decline in a student's grades to teacher quality. So if I took this test one year and did really well, my teacher would receive praise. And if I took the test the subsequent year and did really well, my teacher would receive praise again. And that would reinforce that I had a good teacher. If I did really poorly, that would tell the tool that my teacher was performing poorly. And so going back to Kathy's description of WMDs, one key feature of the impact tool that makes it really dangerous is its opacity. When teachers inquired as to why they were being fired, There was nobody who worked for the school board, the ministry, or the tool provider itself to explain the reasoning behind their low scores. So they had no way of knowing why they were being evaluated so poorly. But rather than encouraging teachers to do better at their jobs, teachers feared that they were going to lose their jobs. And so they ended up artificially inflating their students' test scores. So at the end of every year, when students would take these standardized exams, teachers who were afraid of being fired if their students performed below a certain point would go in and change their students' grades in order to ensure that they would not lose their jobs. But this created a loop of teachers losing their jobs in the following year because they received a group of students who 
had in actuality not reached their grade level understanding in basic subjects like math and reading, but they didn't inflate their scores. So if the subsequent teacher didn't change their student scores as well, it looked like every student in their class declined in their learning. But when these same students took their tests the following year and their scores dropped significantly, all of the blame was put on the teachers and all of those teachers were at risk of losing their jobs. And so this was a really prominent problem in inner city schools and in areas where people were growing up in low-income neighborhoods that were facing more adverse additional burdens outside of school that impacted students' ability to study, like working part-time jobs or taking care of their siblings or even growing up in a neighborhood that isn't really safe or only having one parent at home, so not having as much help at home with things like schoolwork. Um, And so to streamline teacher evaluation and improve student learning, students' lives and their nuanced impacts of their lives on their education was not taken into account. And in turn, teachers were being fired as a result. That's surprising to me that, that teachers, you know, who could have worked there for a long time and were beloved by students were actually fired and that, you know, there wasn't like they fully just kind of took the human decision making element out of this and sort of like with the college admissions example um, when they were deciding what criteria they were going to use for a list I mean how do you put some of those factors into something that's quantifiable I mean you you can't put you can't do that exactly and like you said a lot of these teachers were like loved by their students and student opinion of their learning student experience in the classroom was not part of the model at all Um, evaluations from the principals to their staff was not part of the model at all. Parent evaluations of their teachers who are teaching their children, also not part of the model at all. So the student experience was actually taken away from the model in entirety. So would you say, do you think there were good intentions behind this model? Like, were they trying to improve the schooling system by having better teachers? Was that the goal of this? That's a really good question. Yes. The intentions behind the model were good. They were looking for teachers who weren't putting a lot of effort into their students' learning and trying to weed out those teachers from teachers who were really dedicated and devoted to teaching and to improving student learning. In reality, that just didn't work. Right. So, yeah, we can't always look at the intentions, even if they were trying to, I guess, eliminate bias. It made a lot of students worse off. And also those teachers, their livelihood. I mean, what do they do after they've been fired from a position? Exactly. And the really sad thing was that these good teachers who were losing their jobs obviously needed another job, but they ended up turning to the private education system because jobs were not evaluated the same way for private schools. And so they knew that their jobs would be more secure. So you're taking good teachers out of the public school system for students who come from less privileged families with less resources to devote to their learning. And those teachers who actually care about those students are now being moved, not by choice, but because they were fired from their first job to the private sector where they're teaching students whose families probably have way more resources to invest in their education. Wow. Yeah. This, if this was adopted on a scale across the entire country, it's, it's hard to even think about the terrible impacts that would happen, but also, yeah, just from the community standpoint, I mean, this is a real example. So this really did impact students and the teachers and it did kind of play more into that cycle 
of poverty and not actually bettering those schools for the students who need it most. Exactly. I think these algorithms that are evaluating job performances or sort of any test that's evaluating something about somebody can yield very oppressive results because they're not taking into consideration the nuances of people's lives, which are things you actually do need humans for. Again, maybe not one human because that can lead to a lot of bias, but having a lot of diversity in terms of the human component. What would you say are your main reflections or your main takeaways from this book? I think there is no such thing as unbiased and we need to be so critical of anything that claims to be objective or non-biased. Completely. Humans have created it and so if we ourselves are biased that will always be present in what it is that we create. I think for me the fact that I grew up taking math as truth as you said coming from a background I also studied in the arts I studied political science and economics. And, you know, I took calculus up until a certain point, but I didn't engage with data analytics or coding beyond that. And it just seemed like such a truthful, objective machine. And without people to monitor that machine, the harm that it can do is unimaginable. Yeah, we need more, more transparency and more people to be criticizing these new systems and I think too we kind of inherently assume the integration of data and technology is is progress and that it's it's going to be better because we're moving forward but again this is not the case at all yeah I heard a quote I can't remember in what context it was I think it was actually to do with uh, dairy farming and and wheat and corn farming in a podcast that I was listening to that said that just because humans can do it doesn't mean we should do it. And I think that that really applies to, you know, baking data and algorithms into how we operate and how we evaluate everything and everyone just because we can doesn't mean we have to. For baseball, it definitely makes sense. You know, we all want to bet on who's going to win the World Series. That's something that people do all the time and it's not hurting anybody. But when it starts harming people the way that, you know, Kathy has so clearly spelled out for us in this book, it's not something that we have to do. Yeah, yeah, that is very, very well said. Thank you so much, Jade. I think that we, you know, we've barely scratched the surface on the different examples and case studies that Kathy goes into uh, throughout her book. She touches on online advertising, on the housing crisis and the 2008 financial crisis, on access to credit and insurance and so much more. Um, And so definitely advise anybody to read this book. It was really accessible. It made the information really easy to understand, even if you don't come from a data background like the two of us. Um, And so I think for all listeners, highly, highly recommend. Yes. And Please tune in next week for our discussion on Invisible Woman by Caroline Criado Perez. Thanks, Jade. Thanks, Michaela. To stay up to date on DFN events, check out our website at www.datafeminismnetwork.org. If you're a fan of the show, follow us on Instagram at datafeminismnetwork and on Twitter at datafemnetwork. 
You can also follow us on LinkedIn, where we post event updates and share job opportunities related to data equity and inclusion. Be sure to tune in to our next episode, where we'll dive into Invisible Women by Caroline Pierre Perez.